I'm a card-carrying Basie at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course with the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host of our post-game podcast, Professor Adi Weiner, and I'm in the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. I am the co-host and collaborator with my colleagues Cade Massey and Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen on our show on Wednesday mornings. So we had a couple of really interesting guests. They had Brian Burke, the creator of Advanced Football Analytics, and they had Darren May, the founder of Head Coach of Every Ball Counts, and he was doing golf analytics, and, and Brian, of course, was doing football analytics. So let's go to our first clip, which is a discussion of the New England quarterback Garoppolo, a projection and some statistical discussion. You did a really neat piece on Garoppolo saying, how much do we really understand about him? Can you tell the listeners for a second, like how you thought about that and what you took away from it? Yeah, I've been trying to get better with Bayesian analysis, Bayesian regressions and things like that. And so when I, when I learn something new, I'm always looking for, for the nail, you know, for my brand new hammer, my shiny new hammer. (laughs) And so Garoppolo is my nail, you know, Bayesian analysis works where you have kind of this prior distribution of what you would expect. And so a brand new quarterback in the league, you really don't know what to expect from him. He could be really good, really bad, but he's probably somewhere in the middle. So you have this kind of normal, normal-ish distribution of, of how good this player could be. In this case, I use yards per attempt, which is a very right. standard, very predictive kind of measure of how good a quarterback is. Yep. And so I started with that, just this unknown. And then he throws, you know, a quarterback throws one pass, and now we have a tiny bit more information on him. And he throws another pass, and we have slightly more information. And so the, our estimate, it gets revised slightly every time he throws a pass based on how successful that pass was. And that, that normal distribution starts to change. So the, the mean starts to shift away from the prior mean and towards our observed mean. And our confidence level in that estimate starts to improve as well. And, and so the, the shape of this normal distribution becomes narrower and narrower the more and more information we have. So, Brian, so real after, quickly, let me just tell you, because you don't get the visuals, your Bayesian co-hosts here are just nodding and beaming. Oh, my goodness. That, uh, this uh, is a tremendous I, I, I description. I could not have explained <laughs> and, the Bayesian approach better. And he does it for a living. So we think, radio, yeah. We think, yeah. We think that all of life should be reasoned about in this way, so we love what you're doing. So you apply this approach to Garoppolo. He's thrown like 93 passes or some absurdly small sample. Yeah. And so what conclusion do you reach? Yeah, basically it, it's very, very little information. It's all, almost almost nothing. And so it, you could do the same thing. Just look at quarterbacks after their you know 63rd pass or something like that and look at where their average was and you know Peyton Manning or Tom Brady and it might not have been very good or very bad or it, it really is no infor- almost no information it's light it's good it tells us you know, a little bit but nothing to kind of bet your franchise on okay there you have it a nice interesting discussion and recap of Bayesian analysis and an application to forecasting Garoppolo. Um, I'm not sure you would have gotten a different conclusion if you had taken a different statistical approach, but just to kind of recap, what a Bayesian forecast does is it begins with a distribution on talent. 
And that doesn't come from nowhere in this case. It comes from a historical review of all quarterbacks, and that's what Brian was calling the normal distribution of talent. So if you look at professional quarterbacks and you center their at their historical performance at an average and look at the way it distributes, it distributes in, in the famous bell curve shape. And you have better ones and you have worse ones, but there are very few that are much better and very few that are much worse. And so the question is, when you look at a new quarterback, what do you make of them? And basically, you generally assume that they're average to start, and that's what a Bayesian prior distribution does. And then it assigns a certain probability that they are really great and or that they're really bad. And that as you get data, in this case, it, it's completed or, or passes or attempts made, that allows you to revise your estimate on their talent which began at a prior distribution based on historical talent, and then it revises it based on the data that you've seen. And what, what the conclusion was, with only 93 attempts in, that have been observed for Garoppolo, we just don't have enough data to push you away from where you started. Now, that actually is a parameter in the Bayesian analysis, so it's not as if that was something that was kind of talked, was not really talked about at all. How quickly you allow your new data to overcome your prior is something that you have to decide upon. It's not something that just gets determined only from the data. And so they could have potentially chosen a model where 93 observations is enough to pull you away from your from your prior. So the basic idea is that given the performance in 93 attempts, it's just not enough information to, to move Garoppolo in either direction, either bad or good. And you're sort of left with the basic prior distribution, which is he's probably average. And that's only because we don't have enough data, not because we really believe he's he's average. That could come out later on. There are lots of ways to do this. Um, you could, for example, look at all historical quarterbacks after 93 observations and then correlated that in the classical sense with their lifelong average. And then you that would have allowed you to, to correlate, um, build a model based on that correlation. And you could have forecast with that linear model and the the result probably would be the same 93 observations is just too few to make a, an accurate forecast and the data would look just like a big blob highly uncorrelated and when you have uncorrelated data you simply predict with the mean that was my little statistical lesson and let's now go on to another clip this is brian burke talking about trading away draft picks you can trade down from the you know say the f- first round get uh, get next year, get get a second round, an extra second round this year, and get another first round this uh, next year. So you, mm-hmm. or tra- maybe the best way to put it, I'm not doing a very good job explaining. I can trade away my second round pick this year for your first round pick next year. Right. Mm-hmm. Basically, right. how the the transactions work. So I, if you keep doing that, if you do that more than once, you start multiplying picks, and they, the the browser is kind of at the start of that process. So. But right. in order to sell that pick, you need a buyer, right? And so if, if there's sort of a consensus that, say, for example, um, that this is not a, this is a particularly weak draft class. But, um, but then, I, I, Shane agreed, but in this case, and we don't, I don't know what the overall assessment is, but yeah. what's true in this case is that there's kind of consensus on Miles Garrett being an right. unusually good prospect for an edge rusher, which is a highly valued position. So shy, yeah. having, shy having a consensus top quarterback, you've right. got kind of the next best thing. If you're looking for people to be hungry for your pick. Right. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, just looking. Cleveland has numbers 1, 12, 33, and 52. So that's... Four of the first 52 ticks. Yeah. That's that's impressive. They could follow some other kind of, like, uh, 
you know, a pattern, um, you know, roadmap. So I think uh, I'm, I'm a Baltimore guy. And ironically, you know, Cleveland came to Baltimore, drafted Ray Lewis, was there, you know, uh, in the first round in 1996 in their first draft. Wow. Built, built a, this un, just unbelievable defense. Right. Um, right. And they didn't even have a quarterback and <laughs> they won a Super Bowl in 2000 and threatened for years and years. Yeah. Um, so you can, if they could just put all of their chips in on defense, let's say, and defense is relatively uh, kind of sure bet and less risky in terms of, you know, you can assess athleticism a little bit better on the defensive side of the ball than you can on the offensive side of the ball. And so you have a little bit more predictive accuracy on who's going to turn out. Right. Nice, so, nice emphasis of yours on a little bit, right? Because there's still this uncertainty and there have been plenty of edge rushers that seemed like, you know, sure things and oh, yeah. that didn't actually pan out. So that was an interesting discussion about the draft and the future prospects of the draft. The Cleveland Browns, I should add, um, did not actually end up trading away their number one. They kept it. Miles Garrett was chosen. They they could have probably gotten an enormous amount for it because he was the consensus number one pick, and someone probably would have given them quite a bit in order to trade up for that round. Maybe they trade up their lower first round pick, maybe throw in another second, a third, next year's first round pick, and then the the Browns could have that way keep picking top players. Um, of course, the majority of, of top picks do not pan out into all that much. Um, that's true, and it's well known. Of just because you're in the first round doesn't mean that you're going to be a successful NFL player, In period. On the other hand, here's a piece of analysis that I did myself. If you look at the Pro Bowl squads, almost half the Pro Bowl squad is made up of first-round draft picks, first-round draft picks. So that's interesting. So it uh, doesn't mean you're going to – the vast majority of players don't turn out. But conditional that you are in the Pro Bowl, about half of the players – came from the first round. The second round is the next biggest group, about 15%. The third round uh, accumulates about 10%. And then undrafted is the, the next group, and that's also about 10 11%. So it's uh, it's interesting that of course first round first round draft picks mean a lot, but they don't necessarily pan it into anything. And and good uh, can come of trading. That's of course what Cade Massey and and uh, Thaler wrote in one of their classic papers. So let's go on to another clip. This time from Darren May, and he's talking about golf analytics. Can you give us an example of, of, of having worked with some player using data that reveals something that you might not have seen, or he wouldn't have seen, or she without the data? We have a basic, the, the, there's, there's all different categories of, of stats on the PGA Tour. Obviously, they've broken down into long game, short game, putting, and driving. But one of the putting areas would be specifically a putt from four to eight feet. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a certain test that we put tee pegs out, and they're, they're specifically from four to eight feet away from the hole. And uh, there's 20 putts, and if they make a certain amount, that will give them a percentage of make, and then that has a strokes gain value that you know, the, Mark Brody has come up with so greatly in the last three or four years, and, and we can give them a value on that. Now, mm-hmm. when you've got a player that's at 63% on the PGA Tour, they are, they are probably going to achieve 68% on the putting green at home in Jupiter, Florida as well, and that's what I saw. Okay. So as soon as you see that that's what they're capable of doing, then you've got to make sure that they improve that in training before you can expect that to happen on the golf course. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the big eye-opener to me, is these guys do what they do. That's how they make up their score. It, it is interesting but, and a little surprising. Many people would think either that 
you can tell a story both ways. You can say under pressure, they won't perform as well, or you can say under pressure, they'll bring more focus and perform better. And what you're finding is they actually do kind of on the putting green what they do on the course in competition. So, yes, as soon as you apply a score to it and say, okay, you need to make X amount from this distance, and that, that provides that provides the environment that you would look to train in because you're trying to train as close to the actual event as possible. Well, it took a while to get around to saying it, but the interesting observation there was that if you look closely at the data and determine sort of a putting accuracy, and he did reference Mark Brody, who we, we had on our show weeks earlier, which is a way of sort of controlling for environment when you rank a putting or really any stroke taken in a golf course for confounding factors, for context, that uh, a putter who is 63% accuracy, then you can expect them to be that no matter where they are. That's at the worst, most difficult course um, uh, or a simple course where no one's watching or at home. If you're 63, you're 63, you're 63. It's really the anti-clutch um, or anti-contextual environmental factors for determining uh, who, what kind of player you are. And if you want to do better, you need to work on on what you're weak at and do better and, and in training, and you will be better on on the uh, on actually the, the course, I'm not sure that's uh, a piece of information that um, that's that can only come from data. That was where the it was it was, re, it was introduced as something that what do you learn from looking only at the data? And I guess the observation is that there really isn't any different different quality that you can see in different courses. So um, that's certainly an interesting take on golf. And let's look at one last final take on golf from Darren May. You can give people feedback shot-by-shot basis on whether they're adding value to their game or taking value away from their game. So that's very different from the old school, let's just you know pour a bucket of balls on the range and pound 100 swings out there without really knowing what the consequence is of everything that we're doing. Yeah, for sure. I think that <clears throat> I've had the privilege to stand on the range at the Bears Club. There's a, there's a lot of very, very good players that are at the Bears Club and there's a lot of guys that are maybe on fringe tours at the Bears Club as in web.com or trying to get on web.com and if you saw those guys hitting shots on the range you would several times you would have members come up and say so what's the difference between these guys because they look so good and the ball's traveling fantastically how is this guy top 20 in the world and this guy's really struggling to get out on tour well you're looking at the wrong end what you, you you should be looking at the end where the ball's finishing and what that's doing in relation to their target or where they're aiming. Wow. So my goal is to give people information on their golf swings that's going to make them consistent and then try and work out are they potentially shooting what they should be shooting with that swing before I give them any more information on their golf swing because you're never really then rolling it out and uh, seeing what they're potentially able to shoot that way. So then it gets more into the strategy of what you've given them with that golf swing. And you're giving them a faster car and teaching them how to drive it around the racetrack. And then when they've got a good time around that racetrack, then you're maybe giving them a better car to drive by giving them more information with their swing rather than just swing, 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 swing. So that was a a nice sort of overview of what uh, is attempted to give on an instructional level to an aspiring golf professional or a golf amateur. And that concludes our... Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under Podcasts. 
Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live on Wednesday mornings, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. I am Professor Adi Weiner from the Wharton School of Business, Department of Statistics of the University of Pennsylvania. Come join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your stats. <laughs>